Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature, All Lit Up features books from 60 literary publishers. And now U.S. readers can shop All Lit Up close to home and save on shipping when they purchase books from its new bookshop.org affiliate shop. Browse selected titles at bookshop.org slash shop slash All Lit Up. All It Up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. Check out All It Up at www.allitup.ca. That's A-L-L-L-I-T-U-P dot C-A. Today's episode is also brought to you by Rasan Zenadine's debut short story collection, Dearborn, a sharp tender, and uproariously funny portrait of the lives of Arab Americans in Dearborn, Michigan, called Hilarious and Heartbreaking, Astute and Absurd by Omar el and one of the funniest, truest, and most heartfelt books I've ever read by Morgan Talty. Zenadine's generation-spanning collection introduces readers to an arresting new voice in contemporary fiction and invites us all to consider what it means to be part of a place and community, and how it is that we help one another survive. Dearborn is out September 5th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Being a podcaster has some weird elements to it. Most of the time, having the conversations feels intimate insofar as the notion of an audience while these conversations are happening remains somewhat abstract. And yet, one of my favorite things about this whole process is releasing a new episode to finally be in conversation with people listening to the conversation, to see how people interacted with it, where it travels, how it's shared from one person to the next. And then on the other extreme, a lot of the work before a conversation and getting it ready to go often feels like a mainly solitary endeavor. I say all of this because this movement between solo activity and an intimate dialogue with one other writer and then sharing these conversations with the community of Between the Covers listeners All three of these things feel like they exist in, if not a hermetic situation, a a quiet corner of the larger world, a hopefully calmer and slower literary pocket within the larger whirlwind of life. Yes, I sometimes fantasize that a writer one day will be interviewed for the New York Times by the book column at the beginning of the Sunday book review, and we'll mention the show, or that someday literary podcasters might be viewed more seriously as an important part of the literary world 
in a way that there might be ways to recognize them as such. But mainly, I'm happy with this sense of of intimacy, and even if not privacy, a, a sense of shelter that a community can be and that I feel. So it's usually with a big surprise to me when something happens in the larger world. Like when Zadie Smith mentioned the Ursula K. Le Guin conversations on writing book in the newspaper, or when Padrigo Tuma, the host of Poetry Unbound, reached out to be on the show. Usually I'm reaching out to people of that stature. So it was with particular delight and surprise when Padrig's high-profile poetry peer, Major Jackson, the host of the Slowdown podcast, reached out to be on the show himself nearly a year and a half ago now. And not only that, but that he was an avid listener of the show. But at the time when Major reached out about his upcoming selected prose, because I'm often booked up as far as 18 months or more in advance, I said, let's do whatever book comes next. And I didn't know at the time that his next book would not be any book, but a new and selected poetry. But in the end, I'm really happy that it was because it gave us the unique opportunity to put his career-spanning selected prose from last year alongside his new and selected poetry, which spans two decades of his life as a poet, to explore his poetry through his own writing on poetry. In addition, Major Jackson generously contributes to the bonus audio archive a reading of and a talking about a poem by John Ashbery, More Pleasant Adventures. This joins supplemental readings from so many iconic contemporary poets, from Jory Graham, Nikki Finney, Ross Gay, Arthur Z, Forrest Gander, Natalie Diaz, Laylee Long Soldier, Rosemary Waldrop, Alice Oswald, Dion Brand, Ray Armentrout, and more. And the bonus audio is only one of many potential reasons to join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. From the Tin House Early Readership Program to rare collectibles from past guests. And every listener supporter gets the resource email corresponding to each episode with all the references and material that was used to prepare and all the various things referenced during it. You can find out about all of this and a lot more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with none other than Major Jackson. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. 
They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet, essayist, and podcast host, Major Jackson, earned his first degree at Temple University, not in poetry or in English, but in accounting. But it's there that he studied under Sonia Sanchez as his first and deeply formative creative writing teacher. He then went on to pursue an MFA in creative writing at the University of Oregon, under the directorship and mentorship of poet Garrett Hongo, whose poetry major had first encountered at Temple, yet another formative encounter for him. Major Jackson came up in the Black Arts Movement as a member of the Dark Room Collective, which included such iconic writers as Natasha Trethaway, Carl Phillips, John Keane, and Tracy K. Smith a collective that went on to inspire the formation of Cave Canem, which itself has been an instrumental part of so many Black poets of the last quarter century. Jackson's debut collection, Leaving Saturn, received the Cave Canem Poetry Prize for Best First Book by an African-American Poet and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. It was followed by Hoops, a finalist for the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literature, the collection's Holding Company, and Roll Deep, the latter of which Mark Doty declares, Major Jackson wants art to blow back the ordinary jive of planet Earth, and his new poems Royal and Buckle, Skitter and Swerve, Clot and Spill Out into the World. Roll Deep is his fourth and best book. His voice seems to have broken loose, allowing for all manner of praise and lament, for observation and meditation, the grim and the goofball, and for outbreaks of pure sorcery where punctuation is my jury and the moon is my judge. Jackson's most recent poetry collection, which arrived at nearly the same time as the first confirmed case of coronavirus in the United States, is perhaps fittingly called The Absurd Man, and Gregory Parlow says of this collection, poems in Major Jackson's The Absurd Man are fashioned from masks and personae, impersonations and thrown voices. How ironic, then, that this fifth and most daring book yet sings deeply, solemn and vulnerable, a blues for our times. One of the root meanings of the word absurd is out of tune to be out of tune with these years of American absurdity. Jackson's adroit lyrics resonate through a kind of fission, the collision of selves and personal histories, yielding a most genuine ore. These poems face the music of their own making. Major Jackson was also editor of Best American Poetry 2019, of Library of America's Counte Cullen Collected Poems, and of Ranga for Obama, an occasional and collaborative poem featuring 267 American poets. 
Jackson has taught at NYU and Bennington, and for 18 years, until 2020, he was Richard A. Dennis Professor of English at the University of Vermont. And since 2021, he's been the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Chair in the Humanities at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. His work has appeared everywhere from The New Yorker to Poetry Magazine, The Paris Review to Plowshares. It has garnered him a Whiting Award, a Pushcart Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, an NEA Fellowship, and more. And at the end of last year, Jackson released his debut book of prose, A Beat Beyond, the Selected Prose of Major Jackson, which collects a quarter century of Jackson's essays, talks, book reviews, and liner notes. And at the beginning of this year, he became the third host of one of the premier poetry podcasts in the Anglophone world, The Slowdown. This daily meditative space for poetry was started by U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith, and later inherited by Ada Limon, who has since herself become U.S. Poet Laureate, our current one. So who knows what this bodes for its current host and our current guest, Major Jackson, who is here today on Between the Covers to talk about a landmark moment in his life as a poet, the release of his new and selected poems, 2002 to 2022, entitled Razzle Dazzle, the celebration of a writer of whom John Freeman says, no American poet wears his genius as lightly as Jackson. Carl Phillips adds, Major Jackson has coined an idiom and music all his own. And finally, Naomi Shiab Nye says, Jackson's lush language invites us into the exquisite realms here at our feet. Take it in, be fed, feel close to something elemental again. Welcome to Between the Covers, Major Jackson. Thank you, David, and thank you for that fine summary of my writing life thus far. Well, first, congratulations on the new and selected. Um, I wanted to ask you about looking back across your own career, as there's been a lot of looking back for you recently. You were at Cave Canem again, 27 years after the first time you were there, and thinking back yourself about the passage of time. Your selected prose came out last year where you had to go back through your writing that extends back into your youth and curate it. You've recently, after nearly two decades in Vermont, moved to Nashville, an ancestral home for your family, and also a place you would frequently visit as a child, a a place surely full of memories and stories. And you've created Razzle Dazzle, your 2002 to 2022 retrospective with new poems now living alongside selections from your entire published life as a poet. So first I wanted to start with this gesture for you of looking back, both to hear about the experience for you emotionally or intellectually or otherwise, how the return in so many ways in your life has felt But also I'm curious what you discovered in doing so, what taking a step back to sort of take it all in, and then also taking a step forward to really look closely again at old material with new eyes, what has that taught you about your own work? 
Well, first, thank you for that um, very kind of capacious and insightful question because so much of it has been psychological. I mean, there's there's been a almost a necessary weight. Normally, sometimes when people take a look back, it's triggered by maybe some medical condition or maybe they have realized that, um, like me, that the, the, the way to proceed in the world is to kind of look where we are currently, where our feet are planted, where the excitement is, um, I've always been driven by projects. And so it's always been this kind of forward motion. And I believe this life changed this move from 18 years in the state of Vermont, which was enormously um, nourishing for me as a writer, if not challenging at times, of course. I believe moving back to the South, where I had this kind of both complicated, nuanced <laughs> understanding in relationship to the larger narrative of our country and, and the history of civil rights and my own understanding as a, as a young boy of, of race relations in the U.S., which weren't too far different from what I experienced in Philadelphia. Just only, you know, Philadelphia was only slightly better. So this move also required me to kind of go through pictures, go through old poems. Uh, even my old desk <laughs> contained vestiges of, of my past. And so it, it was involuntary on one hand, and then it became deliberate, i.e., I realized going through old files that I did have an essay collection quite possibly on my hands. And that's how that's how a beat beyond came into existence. I think it tells the story of the education of the poet or the evolution of someone who was already intellectually inclined and realizing that I had encounters, some of them that you mentioned, everything from Sonia Sanchez to Garrett Hongo to the Dark Room Collective and writers on the page who kind of modeled an existence whereby thinking through the world was natural. And when I looked at those particular music reviews, book reviews, there, there, was, there was something brash about the young, younger major to some extent, but always curious. I feel like the, the essays and the poems, if nothing else, I say intellectual and that might be glossing over something that is really kind of innate, which is I've been naturally curious about the world and language was the way in which I processed and came to understand the texture and the contours of my own mind and my reaction uh, to 
to the world. I'm so happy you mentioned that word emotional because I'm at a place now where I am deeply moved and deeply grateful for not only those models, but that a life can be crafted, or as Auden says of Yeats, um, this way of living, a mouth. <laughs> so that that sense of gratitude, now I understand why my grandfather, his elder years, would be prone to fits of of just tears because you do look back and you wonder, you do look back and realize the extent to which um, there were others walking alongside you, instigating, provoking, encouraging uh, those individuals. But my life could have been something totally different based on where I grew up um, and what opportunities I was fortunate to take advantage of. Well, this is a selected, not a collected. So you, by definition, have returned to your work to select and foreground certain poems and not reproduce others. And in listening to a conversation with your editor of your selected prose, uh, A Beat Beyond, it was interesting to learn both that you had organized the essays around a development of thought and thematically rather than chronologically, but also that you'd felt reluctant to include some of your very early prose writings that your editor encouraged you to include nonetheless to give a sense of you over time. Razzle Dazzle, on the other hand, is structured, I think, more traditionally like most new and selecteds. We get the new poetry under the title Lovesick, and then poems from your first collection moving forward chronologically toward your last published collection, The Absurd Man. But thinking of you revisiting your younger self in prose and maybe wrestling with those pieces, I'd love to hear about the things you discovered about your younger poet self on the page that were part of the process of what to keep and what to let go of, and or maybe what you discovered about your tendencies or your gestures or your habits or your modes of being and how they have either deepened over time or been abandoned across those 20 years. First of all, I'm very grateful for my co-editor, Amor Coley, who kind of comes at poetry truly in the old style of a, of a critic, um, a cultural critic, as well as a literary critic. And you're right, he did encourage me to keep, for example, liner notes and music reviews to draw that connection be, um, to the fact that my listening habits so much shaped my ear and my relationship to uh, language and maybe this the cadence and syntax of, of a sentence. So shout out to Amor on that level. The poems were, you're right, the poems were, it was very difficult to to decide what to include and to structure the larger manuscript. I mean, I almost did that. Um, I think it was Auden or Philip Larkin who organized a table of contents of their collected alphabetically. And that would have made things quite, quite easy. But with Razzle Dazzle, what I wanted to maybe 
spotlight is the growth and willingness to be an apprentice. And I, and I still consider myself an apprentice of the art. And I think you can follow that more from book to book. What remained true, however, is I think I've always have been thinking about the, the music of the line or metaphor has always been kind of consistent. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that that's where the, the, the true juice and spark is how we translate the world through figures. And that evolution was really necessary for me to be committed, uh, be committed to. What I chose to let go possibly had to do with, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with poems showing warts. I like manuscripts and I like the modernist intention of the poem being a record of its becoming rather than this kind of finished product, this finished, exalted literary work of art. So for me, the poems that I let go probably had to do with the sensitivities that we bring to reading today. If I felt as though a poem might degrade any human being walking the earth or the earth itself, you know, I, I probably made a, made a deliberate intention of, of excising those poems. Uh, the other poems that are in there, I guess, you know, my evolution is not unlike a number of poets of a certain generation who were very, very committed to learning the width and depth of an art. And that meant writing formally. And so the poems, the early poems in there kind of show a very, and I'm, I'm surprised by this, like I'm among my students, among my, even at NYU, I was the person you took a class with to learn form because it was evidenced in, in my work. But it was chiefly more phase and that phase gave me so much, just attuned my ear and pedagogically speaking, I think that's, um, I think it's important to give students that ability to see how form is coexistent with subject matter and, and topics. Razzle Dazzle also, I, I guess I want to also say this is that I also, I love, I really appreciate your word abandon. It's also a record of my political growth as well and my political concerns. Not that they've all been abandoned, it's more the approach. And so coming up out of and being attracted to the Black arts poets and, and before them, some of the uh, labor poets or the poets who were concerned about workers in this country, there was definitely a, a huge weight towards protest in, in my work. And I was, I was actually quite critical of poets who lacked that sense of consciousness or who were kind of apolitically, apolitical, intentionally so. And when you're reading reviews of, of your heroes, like Gwendolyn Brooks, for whom it was charged that she had abandoned her craft consciousness in lieu of a pursuit of representation and identity and protest, 
it makes you want to kind of dig your dig your heels in even even more. So, uh, and then I encountered the work of Philip Levine and Yusef Komayaka and Garrett Hongo, a bunch of other poets who were read it up, who were writing about culture from both um, a personal as well as a communal. Um, Michael Harper, I would name among them. Um, I can go on a number of poets who kind of helped deepen my relationship to subject matter and showed me that there was more than one way of approaching these uh, particular topics. And I want to say topics that were informed by personal experience, if not still maintaining like a sense of, I don't know, culture, but also writing more personally. Well, before we explore further together, I was hoping we could hear a great early poem and a great new poem side by side. And I was thinking Blunts from your first collection, which is a sort of poet's origin story in one sense. And then the poem that you chose to open, Razzle Dazzle, Let Me Begin Again. And I'm thinking of that poem, not only because you chose it to open the collection, but also because when you were in conversation with Touré and on his podcast, The Touré Show, which was also a, a looking back at your shared long history, but also at your mutual love of hip hop and a discussion of rap versus poetry or rap as poetry, and also a discussion of what makes a poem good. And mm. he asked you to choose one poem of your own to discuss the elements of and to discuss what elements for you are essential for a poem to be good. And you chose this poem, Let Me Begin Again, the the one that opens the collection. So after we hear Blunts and before we hear Let Me Begin Again, maybe you could say a few words about the newer poem and what it means for you that you choose it as the doorway or the gateway for, for us to revisit your work as a body of work. Yeah. Let me begin again, obviously, being the first poem. Maybe not so obvious. Um, I think it it is a poem of renewal and recommitment. And at the heart of this poem, I, I think it is a question of noticing. And in some instance, one has that 30,000 feet in the air understanding of the world. But I'm a strong believer that we see more when we get our, get closer to the ground and pay attention to the earth and what's happening around us. And sometimes I guess there's always been that tension in my work to foreground the political in advance of the aesthetic or in advance of language and the, and the possibility of language to inform me, shape me. And I guess I, I, I wanted this poem too, because it also does not abandon what I understand to be one of the kind of imperatives of literary works of art, which is to contain their time and give a portrait of what's happening in the moment. 
but I'll, I'll start with Blunts because <laughs> Blunts was and still is a fun poem for me. There is a, a line here that occasionally will just arrive and it arrive right when I need, need for it to arrive, page 60. Blunts. The first time I got high, I stood in a circle of boys at 23rd and Ridge, tucked inside a doorway that smelled of urine. It was March. The cold rains all but blurred our sight as we feigned sophistication, passing a bullet-shaped bottle of malt. Johnny Cash had a love for transcendental numbers and explained between puffs resembling little gasps of air, the link to all creation was the mathematician. Malik, the smartest of the crew, counter-argued and cited the holy life of prayer as a gateway to the Islamic faith that was for all intents the true path for the righteous black man. No one disputed. Malik cocked his head, pinched the joint, and pulled so hard. We imagined his lips crazy glued into stiff O's. It was long agreed that Lefty would inherit his father's used car business, thus destined for a life of wrecks. Then, amid a fit of coughing, I broke the silence. I want to be a poet. It was nearing dinner time. Jesus lived here. His sister was yelling at their siblings over the evening news and game shows. The stench of hot dogs and sauerkraut drifted down the dank hallway. A pre-spring wind flapped the plastic covering of a junk man's shopping cart. As Eddie Hardrick licked left to right the thin strip of glue at the edge of a rolling paper, then uttered, so you want the tongue of God. I bent double in the blade of smoke and looked up for help. It was too late. We were tragically hip. Let me begin again. Let me begin again. As a quiet thought in the shape of a shell slowly examined by a brown child on a beach at dawn, straining to see their future. Let me begin this time knowing the drumming in my dreams is me inheriting the earth, is morning lighting up the rivers. Let me burn my vanities, old music in the pines, snifters of scotch, a day moon like a signature of night. This time, let me circle the island of my fears only once, then live like a raging waterfall and grow a magnificent mustache. Let me not ever be the birdcage or the serrated blade or the empty season. Dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed, soon we will encounter you only in motivational tweets. Reader, I should have married you sooner. This time, let me not sleep like the prophet who believes he's seen infinity. Let me run at breakneck speeds towards sceneries of doubt. I have no more dress rehearsals to attend.
Look closer. I am licking my lips. And listening to Major Jackson read from Razzle Dazzle New and Selected Poems. So I want to spend some time with what you call the lyric self and your poetics in relationship to selfhood and identity. But before we do, I thought we'd first start with lineage and inheritance, as it's clear that for you, a self can't come to be without others. And one of the things I love most about your work is the way it makes your indebtedness and your enmeshment with others visible. What Christina Rivera Garza calls the disappropriation of materials. Mm. She says something that makes me think of you when she says, writing is a community-making practice. If we write, we write with others, inescapably. If we write, we write about others, constantly borrowing from the language we share with entire and varied communities at once. When we write, we acquire a debt a real material debt with the practitioners of such languages. This debt transverses all writing. It shapes it. It gives it life, legitimacy. Mm. In your case, whether reading your prose or watching or listening to you in public and sometimes explicitly in the poems themselves, you speak to who you are indebted to. Uh, with Touré, you spoke about Amiri Baraka and Gwendolyn Brooks, among others. With Ross Gay, you both spoke about the importance of Gerald Stern. You've traced your lineage to the first books of poetry in your childhood home of Langston Hughes and Robert Frost. In A Beat Beyond, we get to hear about your encounters with Gwendolyn Brooks and Lucille Clifton as poets in the world when they were still alive and what that meant to you. And when you open Razzle Dazzle, you encounter first the dedication to Sonia Sanchez before we then find poems whose inspirations come from everyone from Sun Ra to Albert Camus. And I don't want to presume that you agree with Christina Rivera Garza or that you would use necessarily the same language of debt and disappropriation, but I would like to hear how you formulate it for yourself in your own words, your own personal ethos of relation when it comes to questions of influence and lineage? Mm. That's a fine, fine question. One that underscores a, a really inherent belief that part of the tension of being a writer is writing within a tradition, writing in relation to a tradition, and writing against that tradition. And I, I understand this to be a kind of a, a pedagogical linchpin of how we teach writing. But for me, it truly is a spiritual matter, one in which I know that I have seen myself, heard myself in the poems of others, and apparently we gift that to readers. It's as if we are transferring something that is unseen, but a certain kind of um, uh, energy. And 
fortunately for me, that's not just been with poems. It's also been with uh, thinkers and political theorists and philosophers and musicians and the rappers. So I, I cannot see myself, I'm almost yoked to the art that has gave me my voice, that has had me consider perspectives, um, lives that I had not experienced or heretofore thought of. And so I like to quote Michael Harper on this score, who says all writers have to, the late Michael Harper, who was also important to me, all writers have to almost intentionally, he doesn't say intentionally, place themselves within a continuum. And that continuum stretches for me, not to start sermonizing here about the humanities, but is really part of a larger project of of as complicated as this term is for a number of people, um, enlightenment, you know, just going for the roots of that, being in that light, not so much the, the movement that created a hierarchy of beings, but to be in that light, to ever, to ever be aware of regimes of learning and putting oneself in the immediate line of that. And it's, it saved me. I, I, I don't want to kind of go into deep personal narratives. I think I'll save that for a memoir, but you can read in between the lines of the poems. I've, I felt nurtured through an estate of intellectual inquiry and art making that gave my life purpose. Well, we have a question for you from someone who was a formative influence for you. And perhaps fittingly, his question for you is about another influence on you. But before we hear a question from Garrett Hongo, I just wanted to read some of the things you've said about him. You've spoken about him in multiple places, including this wonderful essay in Poetry Northwest called Stomping with Garrett. And there are many recollections about him in that essay that I love, where you repeatedly go as a sort of form or mantra, maybe I should start my talk with this, or maybe I should start my talk with this. And one of the many things you share is, quote, or maybe that time he saved my butt after I kicked over a tray full of water and tea at bread loaf, <laughs> frustrated at the overwhelmingly white the overwhelming whiteness and microaggressions I experienced at the famed writers conference or reading one of his illuminating essays on John Coltrane, Whitman and American poetry and individualism and looking up and saying to myself, this is one bad dude. <laughs> but for the purposes of our discussion, I want to highlight one example in particular where you say, quote, Simply stated, Garrett's early poems made me want to be a poet. This was at a time when, as a dedicated student activist who closely studied the poetry of the Black Arts Movement, I believe poems were bombs meant to be deployed in the service of political aims and beliefs. And then I encountered Garrett's work, a poetry of immense interiority, intelligence, and witness, such that I truly understood 
that adage, to speak from one's experience, was the ultimate political act, a primal subjectivity that through the sheer force of evocative language could give substance embodiment. So here's a question for you from Garrett Hongo. A question for Major Jackson from Garrett Hongo. Your new collection includes the magnificent In Memory of Derek Alton Walcott, one of the most moving and noble tributes to him I've ever read, and also one of your finest poems as well. It is deft, full of an honoring emotion and appreciation for Walcott's native landscape and shorescape, and possessed of great formal skill and seriousness. I feel deeply that your own poetry has grown into a great depth and its own originality and sophistication, perhaps under this influence and inspiration. Can you tell us how you met Walcott and what he meant to you as an elder, as a poet of cultural hybridity, as fellow poets of the African diaspora? Oh, dear Garrett, thank you for bringing, bringing him into the room. Um, the, the question about Derek is definitely appropriate to your previous question. I, and I maybe because my debt to Garrett and uh, Derek is so immense that I, I try to kind of let the poems speak for themselves or create that sense of communion with uh, their work. Derek, I met, first met at a performance of a play that he directed, written by Patricia Smith in Boston. And it was a very quick meeting. I had previously read Omeros that came as a recommendation from some colleagues of mine at the Painted Bride Arts Center who were in Philadelphia, who are almost like, you can't call yourself a poet unless you read Derek Walcott. And I think there we do have that attitude regarding the canon and the cultivation of, of a writer. Is that there's certain books you have to read. Um, and Derek Zomeros was important to me for uh, the following reason. Something that he said to me some years later when we had the opportunity, this would have been my second time actually, meeting him, bringing him to Philadelphia to give a reading at the Painted Rider Art Center with uh, Yusef Kumayaka and Thomas Arizelis. And after the reading, waiting for dinner to start, we were sitting in the hotel lobby, sunlight coming through, Derek making his typical jokes. And he said about Yusef, and I write this somewhere, I used to I used to not name the names, but I think it's okay now, that man's at the center of language and at the center of the song. And I had not, and did not need to take a course with Derek because that was the lesson right there. In a very real sense, you do understand that you are merging with your art, that you are entering into the materials of your art. Um, you can hear this with musicians. You can see it in um, visual art and the paintings. That journey is probably the ultimate journey because it's the amplification of the self and it's also the amplification of the technology of the self. How the self, going back to your question about the lyric self, 
how are we born adrift, find voice, understanding, how do we connect? Derek making that assertion about Yusef, for me, I understood to be the highest praise uh, that one poet could give to another, to be at the center of of language. And my models, the, the poets that I've turned to, I don't want to <laughs> kind of go into, once again, the importance of embracing the art um, to the point where you are constantly learning and reading, which I'm understanding some writers today do not feel that they need that as a as an anchor. Um, I get that. But for me, Derek and the poets that I have been drawn to have somehow took an aspect of writing, art making, and literally put their mark on that art. And to some extent, entering into also means changing the river, so to speak, or sculpting language in such a way that one can be heard and maybe a whole culture can be heard. So in the case with Derek, of course, we get the the Caribbean and we get a certain kind of usage of language that is as ennobled as any language spoken anywhere else in, in, in the world or the English language, I want to say. There's a way in which the poets dignify and Derek did that for me. And in the tribute to him, I clearly took my models of Yeatsen elegy, which we find through Auden, and that's kind of passed down uh, to Derek. Uh, so I wanted to I wanted to have those echoes, and that's been a key word for me as well. Going back to your question about lineage, I want the culture, I want the writers, I want the artists to kind of echo through my work, such that. I'm not just standing in this kind of stripped down ego, which is often what we encounter in poems, but a whole community, a whole people are represented. And I, I think that was the gift of both Derek and, and Garrett, actually. Well, you've sort of answered my next question already before asking it, but I'm going to ask it anyways to see if we can answer it again from a different vantage point too. Um, now that we've talked about or created sort of a sea of influences and a sense of lineage, I wanted to put forth your sense of the lyric self and also this notion of what you, Major Jackson, are doing that nobody else is doing. Because as you mentioned, what Derek Walcott says that man is at the center of language, at the center of song. You, you put that in the lines of the poem in memory to Walcott, but you also see those lines in your selected prose, which opens with an essay called My Lyrical Self. Um, and in that essay, you place in opposition Baraka's sentiment that, quote, you have to start and finish with your own voice how you sound, and T.S. Eliot, who said, the progress of an artist is a continual self-sacrifice, a continual extinction of personality. And in this essay, Standing Yourself with Baraka, you say that what you most want to encounter in a poem 
is a human voice, an authentic self, and that you ask your students, where in the poem are you most represented? And echoing the lines in the Walcott poem, you talk about the highest praise one poet could grant another is to say this, my God, that poet is at the center of language, is at the center of song. That for you to dramatize your life into song is what you call the lyric self. So I guess I was hoping you could talk more about selfhood in this regard. I imagine what you call one's song is like one's fingerprint in some way, obviously created by one's ancestry and one's genetics, but at the same time, like no other fingerprint. But how and and why for you is the lyric self the way you want to orient yourself to poetry? And, And maybe if you could speak about what it means to have this specific relationship between identity and poetry. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, poetry, maybe, you know, this is our debt to Whitman, and maybe I was riffing off of that. And in the classroom, I'd like to make the distinction that when we talk about the lyric in the poem, we're talking about all those devices that create, create that sound. But that sound, and and that can be everything from, you know, let's just go to the basics of rhyme and a certain kind of cadence, a meter. Um, And Derek talks about where you find a person most in a poem is when they break out of that metrical pattern. That's where the selfhood lies. But going to Whitman, you know, Whitman's notion of the song of myself really gave us the blueprint of thinking about ourselves in relation to this larger project of a democracy. And by the way, I I spoke about these notions in other countries that are not so embraced. I mean, it's kind of considered gauche, ostentatious to think about creating a selfhood in the poem when there's so much, and this is the tension, I think, when there's so much that needs to be addressed communally in one's work, not not any kind of socialist programmatic way, but um, I am thinking about how Whitman was able to kind of create this concept or project for American poetry in which we kind of map ourselves, but also sing a selfhood and I love, I love the tension between that, um, between those notions and the imperative to do that and somehow that the language can be the canvas by which that, which that happens. The, the authentic for me is we inherit a set of figures, we inherit a set of similes, metaphors, ways of thinking about each other that feel what that feel cliched and the challenge of writing in the wake of how language has been deployed and used is to come up with something that is of the moment and that feels not like it's just rehashing and the closer we get to language this is the entering part of language the more i feel like we can do all that is possible with language. The rappers know this, at least the old school rappers know this. They can get inside of a word and stretch it 
and and also anyone who has a relationship to voice, like literal relationship to voicing, they know they can stretch it. They know that they can quite wittily create those echoes with the with other words and profit off of the close sonic association. I think about uh, Eminem being told that you can't rhyme. There's no word that rhymes with orange. And then he just like squashes <laughs> that idea. You know, That is what it means to be inside uh, language. And, you know, un- unfortunately, because we are advancing agendas ahead of aesthetics, we, for, we took our eye off of the great possibilities of what the art can do. On one hand, I hate the debates, the poetry wars that began in the early 1960s and continued through the 80s and 90s. Might have been in my generation that decided to to abandon the, the kind of hard line arguments around what poetry should and shouldn't do. Yes, it should represent a culture. Yes, it should sing the body electric, but the art is there for play, is there for fun, is there for shaping, is there for us to kind of figure out who we are. It's as much a mode of inquiry as it is a megaphone or or an amplification device or an emotion machine. Well, since you brought up rappers, and since we're also talking about being at the center of song, let's talk about the actual influence of song. You talk with Ture about the importance of hip-hop and rap for you. Your selected prose includes your early writings about music. You refer to Jay-Z and Dylan as poets, and even included a Leonard Cohen poem when you were guest editor of Best American Poetry. In my opinion, the debate about Dylan and the Nobel Prize got sidetracked by the commentary that the committee gave afterwards calling his work poetic insofar as the debate became whether his songs themselves hold up as poems when the the award was actually not a poetry award but a literature award, which sort of changes the question, at least somewhat, maybe not entirely. But perhaps a green with Tyimba Jess in this debate. I don't think if you look at Dylan's or any songwriter's lyrics without the musical accompaniment and without the way the singer delivers it vocally that they hold up as poems on on the terms of poetry but as something else. And by saying that, I'm not necessarily saying that something else isn't part of a broader notion of literature. I'm not saying that. Um, For me, if there were going to be an exception to the rule of honoring only writers of written words for the Nobel Prize for Literature, the best argument for Dylan would be that his writing was actually unusually engaged with literature, whether French symbolist poets or William Blake or Irish ballads, whether Whitman or Hughes or Ginsburg, and that he would then bring these influences together with the American songbook, whether blues or country or rock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also think about how his lyrics often use syntax and vocabulary 
that you'd more commonly encounter when reading rather than speaking or singing, and that he would then make the song accommodate these unusual words and clauses instead of the other way around. Because if you were to solely look at singer-songwriters on their own terms rather than on the terms of the written word, it's hard to argue for Dylan more than, say, Chuck Berry, who Dylan himself called the Shakespeare of rock and roll, but who wasn't really engaging with books and reading. Um, so, so this is my long preference, my long preface <laughs> to think about poetry, something that began as something oral, an oral art that was sung, the lyric coming from the lyre, and thinking of song that is primarily now appreciated as something heard and performed rather than read. Talk to us about how they relate or don't relate for you. Cause I know they relate and maybe, and probably very differently mm -hmm. than I just put forth, but I'm, I, <laughs> but I want to hear more about poetry right. and song from you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Toure, the interview with Toure, because I've been thinking about that moment and it's like, you know, we've, as you said, we grew up together. And if there's a, a debate to be had, it is, where is that overlapping space? If it exists at all, I do believe that it, it exists. And you kind of laid out some of it. And when I talk about Dylan, I often go to, to the ballads, which is one of the earliest roots. I also think about Langston Hughes and how Langston Hughes created and profited off literizing if we can say that, uh, the blues, creating a space in literature for that sound to, uh, to exist. It seems that the, sometimes the sentimentality of song lyrics also prevent them from entering into the realm of literature. But I tell you, I've, I've encountered some lyrics that have utterly moved me and that could have easily have been written in a in a book of poems. Tayemba is right to say, if you take away the instrumentation, what's there? And to some extent, we also know that poets have to create their own instrumentation with the language itself. And in fact, I would even argue the success of a poem is contingent upon how much orchestration and a sense of composition that one brings to the poem itself. So we can, we can, we too benefit from that level of consciousness and uh, awareness. It's feeble to call Dylan's work poetic. In fact, <laughs> it does a disservice. It does a disservice to the art itself yeah. of, of poetry and, and poetry as, as literature, because it kind of waters down the great heft and power of, of his work. I like the provocation that the Nobel Prize and they should have had you on the committee because you made <laughs> such an eloquent argument. And Christopher, Professor Christopher Ricks has written a wonderful book talking about the space that Dylan occupies within literary culture. And it's not a forced space. Uh, although a Nobel might suggest. Now, what we really are angry about is, 
we could have all come up with 25 names. And that's just that's just a matter of taste. And it also may be, to some extent, the Nobel Prize subtly or not so subtly sending a message to American poets about where we are with the art, even though I would argue that is some of the most vibrant literature that is being made today in the English speaking world. Another thing we should add, which I think goes back to your conversation about uh, with Ture about the influence of, of hip hop and, and rap, there's a longstanding bias against orality in the modern world. Even with Dylan, some of the critiques around the Nobel were that he was merely a songwriter, not a writer writer, but it's something much more intensified with poets of color were coming from a performance or a slam poetry tradition. No matter how good you are on stage, there's sort of a subtext of suspicion of whether or not the work would hold up on the page and a racially coded dismissal of work that centers performance rather than text, uh, oral rather than written, which makes me think of your meditation on the poet, Counte Cullen, both in your introduction to his collected works and your essay, Counte Cullen and the Racial Mountain, where Cullen says, if I'm going to be a poet at all, I'm going to be poet, not Negro poet. And where you say that his poetry has simultaneously been excessively praised and prejudicially discounted, but not usually based on the merits of the writing either way but for the ways in which they address broader notions about race. That Du Bois celebrated him on one side as an example of African-American character, and Langston Hughes criticized him as aspiring toward whiteness. But underneath this is the question of vernacular speech, I think. Mm -hmm. That the attraction of Cullen and Du Bois for an elevated language was because of the vernacular having been largely co-opted by minstrelsy for white audiences. And yet, as you describe, as the Harlem Renaissance writers began to explore the possibilities and opportunities of vernacular speech in their work, Cullen increasingly finds himself in a historical cul-de-sac of sorts. To me, this debate endures even after all the inroads of modernism a half a century later, I think of the uproar when Kamal Brathwaite foregrounded what he called nation language or writing in dialect, mm -hmm. where he was using meters that weren't imported, imported meters from Europe and publishing an issue of his magazine in dialect, which caused a lot of critics and writers, including fellow black Caribbean writers to criticize him. Or even my recent conversation with Gugi Watiango, who very much is trying to fight for a central position for African languages on the African continent, which operate governmentally and literarily almost entirely in European languages, where there are African prizes of literature where you can't qualify if you wrote it in an African language. In your essay, you say, Black poets have to bear an inescapable burden. Their work has to do a double duty. To merely wrestle with words and the mysteries of existence is never enough unless they also address race itself. 
And then you spend some time with a couplet of Cullen's that shows his own contradictory feelings about this burden. Yet do I marvel at this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. Given your enduring interest in Cullen, I wonder if you could speak to what the couplet evokes for you, but also thinking about this larger debate, if you could talk about where you position yourself in your poems within it with regards to this Mm -hmm. split that happened a hundred years ago, but still sort of reverberates today, both in regard to the oral and the written, but also the vernacular and the, and the so-called elevated. You know, this is a, you're quite right. Very enduring issue. And I think at the heart of it, particularly if you are either diaspora writer or a writer for whom there is a very strong tradition of speech and language, what we really want to know is, have you been hollowed out and your heart have been colonized? That's, that's really at the heart of that, that critique. Are you mimicking or are you giving voice to your own unique experience? Now, there were and have been critics for whom these questions of intercultural exchange, albeit sometimes quite problematic, but has been quite fruitful. (laughs) For example, for... Eliot to appropriate, interestingly enough, the tradition of vaudeville in the wasteland and the vaudeville is connected to, of course, minstrelsy. Or we can go to uh, John Berriman. It's fraught. No doubt it's fraught. And that's, that's what we are typically kind of addressing and, and, and thinking about when these issues come up. But Cullen found great inspiration in, in Keats. He was called the Black Keats and, and also in Shakespeare. And that's part of his literary inheritance. One of the things we're seeing happening as well is everyone's possibilities, everyone's freedom inside their art today is being circumscribed by over-policing I do believe it's possible to speak outside one's subjectivity if one is bringing sensitivity and an ethical responsibility. I I truly think that that's possible. You're right, we are dealing with these issues up to to today. The the, The colonized mind, the colonized heart is a, Fanon calls it, it's a very tragic figure. However, in my mind, there are far more fruitful dialogues that are happening. It's almost like, to be honest, I'm kind of bored when these critiques come up regarding poets because we survive on what we encounter. If there's deliberate mimicry, if there's, then that's, that's obvious. That's just bad thinking, bad poem making. But if it helps push someone into an area of art making, then I, I can subscribe to that. 
I, I'm just, I just find it problematic that we find ourselves policing ourselves away from a freedom of art making that does, that does not feel generative, graceful. It's almost like we put these kind of stakes into the ground and say, you have to stay under this camp. You, you stay over there. When we know our inner lives, our interiorities is shaped by so much more on a daily basis than what we emerge from and where we are today. Like we're constantly evolving. And I think the art should reflect that. Mm. I hope that answered your question because I, it does. I, I get very kind of intolerant sometimes of, of the policing uh, that happens, realizing that it's far more complex than what we grant these, these issues. Will you actually speak to your aesthetics sometimes within the poems themselves? I like it when this happens. In the last two stanzas of your poem from Hoops called Logan, you distance yourself from language poetry, <laughs> saying, whatever relevance it had in a given moment hasn't endured. The poem ending with the lines, what age granted these lines material good? Can the epistolary form contain our hoods? But I was hoping you'd read an excerpt from a different poem, the last three stanzas from the poem Hunting Park, also from Hoops, which seems to also be speaking to this question, I think, of orality and song in relationship to poetry and maybe even speaking to perceived critics of your poetry. Over the years, I have decided to engage in the poem some of my pushbacks and provocations. I once heard a Black poet speak about another, some of it obviously owed by, I wouldn't say, career envy. But he said that man was so far removed from his culture as evidenced in his art that he did not even know his mother. And that was a very painful, violent thing to hear one poet say about another poet. I don't, I don't, even, I don't even have to throw in identity in there. Because there's a there's a presumption that it and this was very popular for poets of his generation to not afford individuals a complexity of of existence that allowed for even whatever he considered to be a migration from his origins. Even that's part of the tradition. I don't care who you, it's the story of America to some extent. Those who would revoke my poet card, who would charge me with class ascension, who would banish me to the stockyard of single race anthologies or mention such asinine folly as his attention to rhyme, weak shot to procure a public, it's little wonder this will even publish. To wit, sounds are political, aligned, reckoned, conservative, adhering to meter, while liberals stream like chanty, chanting Wiccans 
That's funny. I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I hadn't. Obviously, I read it when putting it together, but I, you, again, you forget what you wrote 20-something years ago. To wit, sounds are political, aligned, reckoned, conservative, adhering to meter, while liberals stream like chanting Wiccans, ecofems enlarge their massive peters. The cracks composed by space heaters, progressives are equally polysemous, Independence advance on Uncle Remus. O oh, Orpheus, grant the skills to stir the dead, like Kanye mixing music with fire, spitting souls through wires. Let me show for the true and living through muck and mire. Rescue the underground so they aim higher. Grant the gift to chisel words like the beers. Let them dangle verbal gems for their ears. Well, I just love eco-fems enlarge their massive peters <laughs> that you rhyme it with space eaters. It's so great. <laughs> We've it's, been, so uh... it's so wrong. <laughs> that one did not uh, quality, <laughs> miss that one with the quality control. Um, no, I love it. I think it's so great. <laughs> I wanted to stay, Major, with your poetics and aesthetics for another moment with another question from another, this time from the poet Brenda Hillman. Mm -hmm. Hi, Major. I'm really happy to be asked to ask you a question. So my copy of your new and selected, oh, by the way, this is Brenda. Um, my copy of your new and selected hasn't arrived, but I actually had been thinking about the scope of your work because uh, I, I saw a poem the other day in Poetry Daily that was so gorgeous. It began, pine shadows on snow like a jasper canvas. If only my pen equaled the downy's stabbing beak this January morning. And I think it was in Suwannee Review. But anyway, thinking about how just dating back from hoops, um, the complexity of your relationship to beauty and description has always been kind of intricate. And so I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about the relationship that you have between, I don't know, formal beauty and a kind of ragged uh, descriptive quality um, that is really just so fascinating in your poetry from the very first, from hoops on. And um, that's my question. Form, beauty, how you create a sort of edginess within your descriptions that isn't, um, you know, purely loveliness. So, okay. Thank you for your amazing work. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you. Thank you for bringing Brenda in the room. Of course. Dear soul and fine poet and inspiration. Um, form, beauty, edginess. I have a friend who 
alerted me to early on, and I'm really grateful for this, about the overly polished um, poem, the overly polished stanza. And she was right to point out, now I accuse her of being anti-lyric altogether. Um, and any any presence of the self um, in a poem sends her kind of raging away, uh, running up into the hills. But, you know, we have these, we've had these debates over the years and it was great for her to kind of point out to me, um, not that there's a falseness to formal or the smooth out language metrical line, not that there's a falseness, but my life is not that. The form can in a way be misrepresenting a subjectivity. And she made a very important case for the gorgeous tension uh, that can happen when you have a, let's see, a metrically driven, um, sonically driven poem, and yet one that kind of has its kind of bumps throughout it, or either in terms of its cadence, or in terms of its language. And so when Brenda asked that question, it goes back to me how I was very intentionally almost programming those moments into my into my poems and, and how to do that. Sometimes it means leaving out a word so that it doesn't meet the, the expectation, the formal expectation. Sometimes it means thinking about a more kind of guttural sound or word that could uh, enter into a stanza or a line. One area of apprenticeship that I feel as though has been important to me is the kind of long cadence, complex sentence written within a formal poem. And for me, it, it was writing over and over again, rhyming quatrains and students, former students of mine, they will say that this has been something that I've gifted them over the years with having them write a kind of, uh, not a, a pentametrical line, but something, a trimeter line where the sentence just cascades down. And when that happens in a poem next to a language that feels a little bit more kind of textured, maybe street, there's this great kind of gorgeousness that happens that I feel is closer to reality in my lived experience. Mm. There, there are ways that you evoke in your prose a poetics with regards to nation and citizen and self that feel traditional in a certain way, I would say. Um, perhaps connecting to earlier, your early influences of Frost and Hughes, where you say things like, the poem represents the purest evidence of the human soul. And in a Whitmanian sense, a poem is the expression of a singular self. But while you don't declare this outright in your prose or identify it as such when you write about your poetry, I feel like there's another force in your poetry that is a countervailing one that pushes against or troubles the boundaries of self and selfhood and the individual. And perhaps it's related to this raggedness that Brenda mentions in relationship to formal beauty. 
for instance, in the poem she pointed to, it ends with the lines, sealed in its form, the austere world I've come to love beckons, earth runnels soon resurrected into a delirium of streams and wild fields. Till then, branches like black lines crisscrossing the subarctic. This juxtaposition of a world sealed in form, but resurrected by a delirium of streams and wild fields, Mm. feels kindred to something you say in the opening poem to the book that you read earlier. Let me circle the island of my fears only once, then live like a raging waterfall and grow a magnificent mustache. Again, an island, something like a sealed form, and then a raging waterfall, and like the wild fields, this untamed facial hair. And I want to explore several ways I feel like you seem to assert a self while also expanding it beyond itself or making it porous to itself. Uh, I think again to your conversation with your editor of your selected prose, where answering a question about fear, you talked about the fear people have of others across divides, and that you were inspired in particular by those who aim to write a poetry that tries to cross cultural divides. And thinking of that sentiment, I am reminded of Tracy K. Smith deciding to translate the poetry of the Chinese poet Yi Lei and how she felt that reaching across difference in this way was what was needed in the world right now. And she has this wonderful meditation on translating Yi Lei's poem, Black Hair, where she says, quote, Working on the poem... I saw clearly how the recurring image of black hair signifies within the specific context of Asian femininity. And yet in my hands, in my mouth, the phrase black hair began to make space for a second set of values and vulnerabilities as informed by my racially specific experience. And then she goes on to talk about how she lets her own voice harmonize with Yi Lei's within the translation rather than trying to erase it. And then says, this is the miracle of translation to me. I am elated that a black woman in the United States alive in the midst of a national racial reckoning might find her reality bolstered and clarified by a Chinese woman's poem written on the eve of political uprising. What might it mean for a reader to be assured that herself, as marked by race or any other signifier of identity, need not submit to being an effaced presence in another poet's lines, need not be a silent witness or mute interloper? What might it mean for a reader to be urged into vocal participation? What might it mean to be told All are welcome here. I'd love to hear more about who you are thinking of when you say you are inspired by poets writing across the divide and how, if you think they do, how your poems do this and whether what I just read from Tracy, of course, whether that speaks 
to you. It reminds me of you in a way, it, which also feels like it complicates your view of the singular self. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, great close reading. Thank you for that. I'm just like rocking back and forth, enjoying the connections you're making, how you're framing that question. Um, and those poems that Tracy translated, which we've published, some of them we've published in Harvard Review, are just some of the finest work out there. And and the work that she's that she's doing and other translators are doing really is taking us back to a golden age, I think, of American poetry being informed by these conversations that we're having with poets throughout the world. As you're talking, I was thinking of Miłosz, I was thinking of Seamus Heaney, uh, Zimborska, a number of number of poets who have kind of led me, and I don't I don't name them as as much as I as I should. There was a moment in which I read um, a poem by Seamus called "Wills Within Wills," and maybe if you are remember being a kid, but um, turning your bike upside down and turning that will and maybe even, of course, putting a straw in it and flittering it, making that flickering sound. Um, to be taken back to that space, here, here is this poet, who I, I don't remember the year that Seamus was born, but um, to see myself in that work, in those poems, or to hear Miwosh say, no other end of the world will there be, these were these were poets that called me and invited me to go back to your use of the word field and how you're reading field in my work um, who had me realize that these fields were connected they were aligned they kind of stretched um, beyond my immediate purview and it's great when a poet kind of turns you turns your head uh, in that in that way, I also thought about the necessary work that poetry does, which is I have been speaking of wildness. I have been early on that kid that shows up in the in the presence of a white person who has feared them, and of course you can't just say, "Hey, here's some poems. This is my humanity, right? This is." The real me. I know you're informed by all the imagery that that you've been fed. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. This is one of the cases for for the humanities. I said I wasn't going to sermonize or or get on my soapbox, but this is one of the most important aspects because another feeble idea is the notion of nationalism. It's just, it just is not a great container of the world that we live in. Nationalism invites a certain, and this is not to discount the work of culture. This is not to discount families, hard-earned rituals that create a sense of connectedness. But that when fear is operating to prevent us and that you have the drum of nationalism to kind of wedge and crowbar us away from each other and not to embrace each other's wildness, not to embrace each other's most lyric amplified self, then of course, language falters, our art falters. 
so we were talking about the bridge or not the bridge, but I'm thinking about um, the role of literature and its ability to kind of both honor the honor the self. I know you were probably, I really appreciate your problematizing that, but also creating space for others and, and, or for ourselves to be seen or others to be seen in our work, particularly across international literature and poetry. Yes, I was talking about being the object of fear and how it's to some extent one of the one of the great purposes of art and indeed literature is to have us kind of see each other beyond those constructions that render us invisible or disappeared. I know we cannot eradicate it, but the conversations around nationhood that really turns people into cardboard figures is countered by the literature that we we ingest. And I know, you know, movies and television has supplanted uh, theater, the stage, the short story, the poem, but so much as the poet says, is found there that could, I don't know, take us take us back to a level of decency as regards each other and um, allow us to kind of walk together rather than walk against. And I feel like the political landscape of America is aided and abetted by these tensions people profit off of these particular tensions tensions and literature always makes me feel good about being human and feel good about others well part of the reason i ask this question is because one of my favorite aspects of your selected prose is about this the question of writing across the divide and it's something you engage with in multiple ways and in many essays you look at straight-ahead racism, such as Wallace Stevens calling Gwendolyn Brooks a coon, or how you look through Robert Frost's letters and find there's not only no mention of Gwendolyn Brooks, but no correspondence with any Black people, not even one letter that made as its subject a Black poet or a Black person. You looked at other poets from the the same period and, and found similar results. In response, you then look for examples of cross-racial poetry friendships, whether Hayden and Auden, Baraka and O'Hara, Lowell and Walcott, or Rich and Lord. And then in a different essay, you talk about how it seems like white poets today don't have black friends, that their poems, if they engage with race at all, capture quote-unquote encounters with people of color not black people in their homes or their lives, but rather by chance in the world, often on public transport. And in this same essay, you talk about how you think fiction writers are much more willing than poets to explore reigning racial attitudes, that poets seem less willing to be repulsive or repugnant in poems. And you call this absence of engaging with race within poetry written by white people, appalling, that the imagination should know 
no moral bounds, that this is an important aspect of social life in America, and that the majority of white poets in America continue an unsettling and conspicuous unresponsiveness towards something that's truly fundamental to life in the country. And then you look at some white writers who attempt in various ways, imperfectly, to engage with race. Most notably, Tony Hoagland, where you say you'd rather have his failures than nothing at all, which is notable given that his engagements with race are most often not reaching across the divide so much as a provocative evocation of white racism. In multiple episodes of this show, we've discussed the famous exchange between him and Claudia Rankin. In part of that exchange, he says, I am not trying to sidestep. Of course I am racist and sexist, a homophobe, a classist, a liberal, a middle-class American, a college graduate, a dropout, an egotist, diet Pepsi drinker, a Unitarian, a fool, a AAA member, a citizen of Texas, a lover of women, a terrible driver, and a single mother. Purity is not my claim, my game, nor a thing remotely within my grasp. I'm an American. This tarnished software will not be rectified by good intentions or even good behavior. I guess I'm really interested and compelled to hear more about your position, which I suspect is a minority one in today's climate, that it's better to have poems by white poets that might ultimately be considered racist or harmful. Let's say another example, Kenneth Goldsmith's what I would call disastrous (laughs) autopsy remix of Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. It's better to have them enter into the discourse to engage with race from their subject position or from their imaginary, that the continued harm of the silence and avoidance seems to be a greater harm in your mind than the harm that might be caused intentionally or unintentionally when a white poet engages with race in the poetry discourse. Wow, I'm so happy you went there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So happy you went there. Well, let me say that that essay, uh, Big and Black, A Mystifying Silence, probably should be read more as a historical artifact during a moment when our friend Claudia Rankin and some other Poets, thinkers were having dinner. We had just read at University of Pennsylvania and that post-reading dinner, Claudia brought up the encounter with Tony and her class, which led to, of course, this big conversation. But before the AWP moment where she kind of told the story of that night, I had written this particular essay. It was my meditation on that on that evening. I mean, I'm equally repulsed by calling Billie Holiday the cosmic washerwoman, mm-hmm. right? And is there harm in that? Yes, but I'm being harmed every day by language that postures itself as what advertising uh, work speak. So 
the consciousness that we bring to how we engage our inner lives, our inner thoughts, back then, I felt as though we needed to break that silence. I wanted an interiority that kind of mapped how are, how are modern day races shaped today? How does that happen? Now, granted, I got a lot of poems written by white folk after that essay submitted for the Harvard <laughs> Review. And I was like, okay, yes, you have, an, you have a, uh, a, a audience, you know, someone who's curious, but let's, <laughs> let's just put it out there in the world. And I think it maybe we're now back at a moment where that is not subject matter. People, that's not a place people, they, people don't want to get in those waters. And it's because we live in a culture, of course, of, of canceling people. And it is deadly to the imagination. Again, I believe we can be ethically and moral responsible without art and the intentional harm we believe someone to bring emerges simply out of a lack of consciousness or awareness. But if you notice, there is a huge reaction in the world right now, not because people want to be PC, it's because we are posturing ourselves in a way that doesn't allow for a genuine engagement with people. And I don't know where that lack of grace comes from. I spoke to a seventh grade teacher two days ago who talked about the fact that children today in her experience, she was in the classroom for eight years, they don't, they don't respect the teacher or authority or each other anymore. And I'm not, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we're not arriving to the table with a lack of regard or respect, but we seem more to be driven by retribution. And I, and I feel like the, the, the climate that we're in moves towards a climate that if you play itself out, it's going to shut down any authentic art. A friend of mine who is, has clients who are writing memoirs and essays, and she's a person of color, a black woman. And she's like, this is, excuse my friends, this is BS. Like you're, you're asking me to serve as a person who's going to erase your work of any controversy that really is the subject of the work. And, you know, I understand editors want their books to sell. They don't want controversy, although controversy always raises <laughs> the number of units that go out, out the door. Um, but when she found that out, when she found that she was being used that way, she didn't want to put a rubber stamp on the book. And sometimes blurbs work in that way too. If so-and-so blurbed it, then how can it be problematic? I do think we need to have sincere conversations and not just put it on the previous generations. We today come from communities. We harbor these notions towards each other and and it's imperative that if the art is going to grow or we're going to we're going to go we can't give over to a committee of readers 
who are prepared to say, well, that's not allowable, this is not allowable. Mm. And I, I, I'm, I'm saying that realizing that someone can be harmed, but we can be prepared to handle some of the evil in the world. And that's part of living and surviving. Well, perhaps the place... If it is evil. I don't want to say poems are evil, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps the place where you yourself had to confront your own privilege and your desire to be silent in the face of it was when you were asked to go to the world's largest refugee camp Mm. in Kenya as a poet. And you say, although I had been sent there to prostitutalize about the integral and synthesizing powers of poetry to impart a provisional understanding of our lives, especially those disrupted by travesty, I privately decided it was not my responsibility. And then you go on to teach your favorite poets there, but half-heartedly, sort of shaken by what poetry could do at all in the face of tens of thousands of deaths and 1,000 people a day seeking asylum uh, from war and from natural disaster. You say that you truly believed that your own comfort did not authorize you to speak, and you confess that you felt that many people who claimed a poetry of witness were often exploitative or self-serving. Nevertheless, ultimately and eventually, you do write in your collection, Roll Deep, a sequence of poems called the Dadab Suite, named after the camp. And I'd love for you to read one part of what you chose to include in Razzle Dazzle. But before you do, I was hoping you could orient us to how you checked yourself as you wrote these pieces to not be exploitative, to not be self-serving, and how you were able to ultimately break a silence that this unfathomable suffering put before you? Mm. The, and this is a struggle for all writers, I guess, assessing the place of poetry in our world is an act of maturity, a personal growth for poets. And whereas prior, one can speak quite cavalierly about the role of poetry during wartime or being on the edges of seeing it up close. You come to think about the imprisoned poets who really did use poems to survive. I mean, wrote their lines on prison walls, but it felt in the face of it futile. So I had a, I've had many come to Jesus moments, but that was one of them. I professed maybe out of cowardice that I wouldn't speak to it. And then that, after I wrote that, that didn't feel right at all. It felt like I had been given the privilege of bearing witness and to speak about the limitations of poetry during those moments felt like a fruitful direction to go. Speaking about acknowledging, let's put it that way, that here I was 
for a week or more dealing with men and women who were recruited as child soldiers who had crossed a desert to arrive at these camps, their work would have been more interesting. I had to, I even had to say that to myself. This is the work that needs to be heard. But once I acknowledged that, then I was able to kind of break through to something that felt like, and again, we weren't, we weren't, I'm using the word policing, but these these questions of appropriating other people's narratives was not part of the wasn't part of the dialogue back then or the discourse. I mean, we, we were talking about appropriation, but somehow the poets were exempt. I love this moment in Camus and his essay, Create Dangerously, where he says the artist, you know, the artist would be up on the, uh, you know, while the gladiators were facing off against um, each other or some animal, the artist would be up in his stone seats, looking up at the sky, <laughs> maybe thinking of some words, you know, if they were a poet. But then the artist suddenly found themselves down there alongside the gladiators. And circumstances change. And for me, it wasn't as dramatic, but it was, it was my life had reached a point where uh, metaphorically speaking, I had to make decisions about why I was doing what I was doing. Going back to, if you don't mind me saying this, about the orality, oral culture, it just occurs to me to say that the bias against different kinds of poetry, I'm sorry to leap so far back, but I want to say this because I do think it's in, re- it's in there's a connection here. The bias against oral cultures or an or poetry that is born out of performance. We don't know how people have arrived to this art other than through what is sanctioned, which is the classroom. We presume that someone encountered a poem in a classroom, but people encounter poems in many different areas of their of their lives. These particular young people in this refugee camp had already had a relationship to poetry. They had already embraced it. They were publishing poems in their in their newspaper that they had founded just a couple years uh, prior. So how I was able to break through that silence was contemplating whether or not that silence would would utterly truly be fruitful. Or could I add my voice as part of a larger fabric of voices, a larger composition of voices? This is how I experience. And I also made sure that I wrote it and I published it and I moved on. Mm. I wasn't going to turn it into a, and I, they published and In fact, it was a commission from the Virginia Quarterly Review who Subsequently, after I was there, sent a photographer out there. But you know, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna turn it into like a one-person performance. I wasn't gonna make some sort of economic gain from it. I just wanted to write it, tell my experience. The the debrief from the officers there, telling me about the stories of some of the women, some of the children. 
and the men, it was deeply moving. And, and I was just spawned to kind of speak it. And I would do it again, even in this, even in this climate. In the placid lean of an arid summer, in the lingering snarl of pit latrines, the sharp barbs of the acacia thorn tree, in the opaque eyes of the girl fingering frenziedly her arm's badge of skin, suffering cholera, unearth a feeling for people who are not your own in the sinister look of a man beneath the kufiyad. He is not al-Shabaab and the boy selling refurbished phones in the market, wary of your presence, your queries, the aloof gaze of women behind hijabs who flee your camera's barrel, who swiftly turn and cover in this land devoid of vegetation like a dried sea that stretches to their war-torn country scarred over like a child soldier's back. The camp swell in singeing heat hot as empty air of eyeless politicians who have no stake in other clans. Embrace the father who chews cot, the girl who sells her limbs for all her body can take. Think of the rootless, the dispersed, when you slide into the porcelain glove of your tub like an emperor. Call back the horn of Africa. Close the divide. For fear of despair's reprisal, pray they love in return. And listening to Major Jackson read from his new and selected Razzle Dazzle. So I want to leave the world of humans and reach across the divide between the human and non-human as you do. But before we do, in the spirit of how you said recently to Sonia Sanchez in a conversation, that what you particularly admired about her was that she never drew the line between her life and her art between being a mother or activist or poet. In a similar spirit, we have a question for you from a human you know well about the many roles you play within the human community. So here's a question for you from Evie Shockley. Hi, Major. It's Evie. Congrats on Razzle Dazzle, new and selected poems. This is a a serious milestone, a selected poems, and I'm thrilled for you and um, thrilled for us that we get to read it and look back and think about the the arc of your career thus far. Um, I myself have been um, particularly leaning into uh, and enjoying the poems in Lovesick, the news section, and thinking about these sort of trademark Major Jackson poetics, um, the the kinds of lush and unexpected images that your work tends to produce, um, the way you uh, reach for inherited forms, but also sort of make them your own, make them make them bend to the work that you need them to do. I think particularly I've been taking note of the range of subjects that your poems uh, embrace uh, and always have embraced uh, as long as I've been reading your writing. But just looking in this 
new section of Razzle Dazzle, you've you've got allusions to everything from Monk to Michael Brown, Orpheus to Aretha, Greek gods and Yoruba priestesses, Blake and Baraka, Lucille Clifton and Marvin Gaye, Dostoevsky and Zagayevsky, um, and all the places, uh, the Roman Empire, Brazil, France. Um, you, you're just bouncing around not only from sort of city to city or cultural capital to um, cultural landmark, but also around in among the things that we call the natural world, uh, the mountains, the, the different flowers, the different trees that you call up. Um, there's just there's just so much, and your poetry manages to just scoop it all up and and mix it together, and and make that movement across time and space seem um, so inevitable. And that's just one of the things I've always appreciated about your work. Um, in terms of a question, I, you knew I was going to come around to it sooner or later. Uh, in terms of my question, I think it's less about your poetry per se and more about how you've been able to write with such vitality and um, consistency over such a long period of time, um, 2002 to 2022, according to your book cover, while at the same time being such a, a good citizen of the poetry world. Um, when I think about all the things that you do and have done, um, the poems, of course, but you've also got a book of essays now um, that collects the criticism you've written over these same period of years. You've got the years of editing um, poetry for a Harvard Review. You've got the Renga for Obama book that you organized and, and published. Uh, you've got the reading series that you have hosted over the years. All the teaching and mentoring, both at Vermont and Vanderbilt, but also at Cave Canem and the work that you've done with Furious Flower and all the other kinds of mentoring and blurbing and just shepherding of other poets' work and efforts um, over these years. So that's my question. How have you been able to be so productive and, and to maintain such a uh, a consistent and really strong practice of writing and publishing while also doing so much to support the work of others and um, what we think of as 
the poetry community broadly at the same time. I'd love to hear you reflect back on that. Thanks, Major. Appreciate um, someone who I deeply admire and and love and and their work both as critic and poet have fed me and served as a model who also has mentored and taught and ushered in next generations of writers. Thank you, thank you, Evie. Thank you so much for that question. And I guess it kind of goes back to something I said earlier about having the privilege to kind of right now pause and take stock. And this really does feel like a a pivot moment, both as a writer, but also just as a human being in the world. And there's a spiritual dimension always to all of this. And that's not a hierarchical statement that I'm making, but more. I've been nurtured and I want to continue to make opportunities for others to experience a kind of a growth and movement towards an openness. You watch the interview with Sonia Sanchez, who I've only known to model that kind of generosity. I think somewhere I write about being one of those individuals that Gwendolyn Brooks said, read a poem, come to my reading, read a poem, and then later wrote a $500 check on the eve in which my rent was due. (laughs) Um, Being part of that continuum I mentioned is realizing that there's a level of service, caretaking that um, is about the art. I was I was mentioning the interview with Sonia Sanchez where at one point I asked her a question about what does she want her students to walk away with? And nobody in the room, nobody in the room was prepared the people who organized it at the Pew Foundation, the the photographer, people standing with their kind of clipboards. She said, I want my students to know that I love them. And the room stopped, paused. We were in their offices at the Pew Foundation and everyone got chills. I even heard a young woman, young sister over in the corner, tear up a little bit. That takes poetry out of the realm of the intellectual. It takes it out of the realm of sociopolitical. And it puts, puts it squarely into our humanity. And I normally don't like to flip that card too much because I don't want it to invalidate also the heavy inheritance of art making, pushing the poem towards song. And as an art that evolves, that gets a hold of us because of that craft. Um, So I would say to that, to Evie's question, first and foremost, I had people that modeled that for me. I would also say that, and this is my opportunity to talk about the slowdown, as an editor, 
And as someone who's taught, I've always seen myself as part of the estate of poetry. And I guess what I mean by that is, yeah, I want to read, I want people to feel empowered and seen and heard in their poem, but I'm also equally dedicated to the to the art itself. And so the poem that emerges, and I've had many students over the years for whom I'm just utterly proud and it'd be ridiculous for me to even single out one or two of them, but they have made a mark on the language and on the art. I was listening to, I found a CD of mine in my collection that I'm digitized and I came across June Jordan's Poetry for the People. And I heard a young Samaj Sharif, I mean, as an undergrad, reading a poem, it was just like, to see where she was then to now is uh, phenomenal. And I and that's the other reasons. Like, I take great pleasure in watching people evolve and and grow. The teaching part is is just, you know, it's also like it's where the bread and butter comes from. And institutions serve as the great patrons of poetry these days, you know. Not everyone can have a Rosenfeld, a Rosenwald Fellowship, uh, Mr. Hughes and all those black poets in the middle of the last century who were supported by that, those great efforts to identify writers of color. But I'll also say a curiosity about what is possible with language drives me as well. And that's my own practice. That's what keeps me going. I think it didn't hurt for me to have a business education and think about not so much the business side, but to have a set of effective um, daily rituals that keep me coming back to to um, my regime of writing. It's almost like working out. Um, and I don't have any special rituals that I do. I don't take morning runs or uh, you know, fix a, a coffee a certain kind of way every morning before I sit down. But I do sit down. I, I remember Philip Levine calling, calling it butt time. You got to put in your butt time, even if nothing, nothing comes. But I'm also inspired by my, my peers, you know, I mean, and not in not in any competitive way, like, oh, snap, like Evie being one of them, you know, um, I don't think there would have been a beat beyond without her collections of criticism, you know, and her poems. So the Darkroom Collective got the engine going on that, allowed me to see myself in relationship to a community of writers. We were all young. None of us could have predicted the impact on the culture. I want to make a small, maybe slight correction about, about um, the Darkroom Collective and Kaveh Kanem. Kaveh Kanem emerged out of its own soil. We shared many members of the Darkroom Collective, particularly me, was huge fan of Cornelius Eady and still is. And Cornelius is the big link there. And Cornelius also wrote that important 
piece in the New Yorker on the Darkroom Collective that launched many of us, at least gave us a face. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Charles Rao and uh, <laughs> Callaloo was one of the first, but the the New Yorker kind of built off of this growing reputation of the Darkroom Collective. So I'm inspired by my peers. I cherish the mentorships that I receive, the friendships current today. Over the pandemic, some of us created writing groups, and I happen to be in one that still meets uh, on Monday afternoons for two hours. That helps as well. Well, you've you've long written about the natural world in different ways. You're on the board of Orion, and in a conversation you had with Orion's poetry editor, Camille Dungey, at one point you both talk about the myopia of what is considered nature poetry. And she says about your work, quote, I was fascinated by those early poems out of Philadelphia. I thought, see, this is what we don't get to see. We don't see this idea of the greater than human world in an urban setting in a way that you worked so well into your first two books. Mm. Now you've got your space in Vermont and in many ways, your recent poems feel more conventional to my expectations for an environmental poem, but there's still so much human in your work, so much about what it means to be a man in nature. And in that way, some kinds of thinking about what environmental poetry should be might say your work doesn't count. Now, thinking of this and as a first step into talking about your longstanding ecological concerns in your poetry. I was hoping maybe we could hear one of these early poems that, that Dungey is attracted to, uh, the greater than human world in an urban setting poem. And I was thinking of the poem Pests. Good choice. <laughs> I grew up maybe about a good... Mm, 15, 20 foot, somewhere between 15 and 25 minute walk from Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. And me and my friends at ages 10, 11, 12 would say, we're going hiking. <laughs> Here's this kind of long urban park. Uh, and it did require of us to do some navigating but I slowed everyone down because I wanted to stop and look. Um, and so I was interested early on in the bugs. <laughs> and maybe this poem came out of a, a memory of learning about cicadas. Pest. I heard the terrible laughter of termites deep inside a spray painted wall on Shawswood. My first thought was that of Swiss cheese hardening on a counter at the American diner. My second thought was that of the senator from Delaware on the Senate floor. I was on my way to a life of bagging tiny mountains, selling poetry on the corners of North Philly, a burden to mothers and Christians. Hearing it too, the cop behind me shoved me aside. For he was an entomologist 
in a former lifetime and knew the many song structures of cicadas, bush crickets, and fruit flies. He knew the complex courtship of bark beetles, how the male excavates a nuptial chamber and buries himself, his back end sticking out till the female sings a lyric of such intensity he squirms like a Quaker and gives himself over to the quiet history of trees and ontology. All this he said while patting me down, slapping first my ribs, then sliding his palms along the sad, dark shell of my body. How lucky I was, spread eagled at 13, discovering the ruinous cry of insects as the night air flashed reds and blues, as a lone voice chirped and cracked over a radio, the city crumbling. We stood a second longer, sharing the deafening hum of termites back from their play and rest till he swung suddenly my right arm, then my left. Been listening to Major Jackson read from Razzle Dazzle. One area, I don't, I'm, I don't have a great sense of humor in my poems. Poems are often quite serious, but I've gotten better. And this was one of the earliest poems where I said, well, this could be a protest about, you know, being pushed up against the wall by the police. But what a great, you know, you think of these ideas. Oh, that'll be fun. What if they both stop to listen to the insects? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would I would say your poems have a, a great sense of humor. Oh, um, <laughs> but I do think what Camille Dungy says about your man in nature poems that come later than past are different than most of, let's say, the self-described eco-poets that come on the show who more often are attempting to leave the human vantage point when engaging with nature or evoking different vantage points. Like I think of Alice Oswald in one of her recent Oxford lectures, which centers largely on the book of Job. And after she characterizes the book of Job as a kind of ancient poetry slam with six poets and one of those poets being God, and they're all competing to describe the nature of reality where the whirlwind that is God speaks in verse and in judgment. And she says, the shift here is from a lyric to an epic universe, from a personal howl to an open, many-centered, unmeasurable, unfolding form, as if to say, listen, the best poem has already been written. It is here and it is existence itself, whose script is the earth and whose rhythm is the seasons. And she calls the phrase in the book of Job, from the scent of water it flowers, mm -hmm. a brilliant micro-sensitive sketch of the outward inwardness of trees, saying, you hardly notice as you read that you've had to climb right into the heartwood and inhale from there the stony smell of water before it rains and you will have to have leaves. You will have to be possessed of some kind of vegetal porousness to register the rustling of a tree has hope. So even if this isn't your poetics speaking from outside the human, I sense the pull of this open, many-centered, 
unmeasurable unfolding form on the humans in your poetry. And you definitely also, I think, appreciate this poetics. I think of your flash review of May May Burstenbrugge's book, Hello the Roses, and your selected prose, which made me smile, where after describing her work admiringly, you say, such deep forest loftiness has its skeptics, whereas Wordsworth heard the still sad music of humanity, Maymay would be hard-pressed to notice other people walking along the mesa. However, few living poets are as able to enter headlong into the spiritual state of our environment and its endangerment. Ethereal and metaphysical, Hello the Roses presents one of the best minds in modern poetry. Who cares if she doesn't greet you on the hiking trail? I love that. And another sense of humor here. But um, you're both praising her and I think suggesting maybe a difference in orientation. But I wondered if mm-hmm. you could speak into some of your of the ways in which you want to approach the ecological. Thank you for bringing Alice also into this uh, admirer. And I guess the melding, that's part of it. It's like when we start creating the boundaries be, between ourselves, and, and this is my admiration of Amemay's work is that when you create these these boundaries, and sometimes the boundaries are inevitable because they are kind of contingent upon uh, time. There's there's a narrative poem, and it's speaking speaking from a particular subjective self. But with with nature poetry, and by the way, when when you mentioned uh, that quote from, and I've been meaning to talk to Camille about it, but like a man in nature that took me to Robert Bly. And I was like, no, I'm running away from the, you know, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, but I appreciate the terms because it does have me contemplate how quite possibly the gender view is potentially one of, of conquest getting it right. Where what I'm interested in why admire Bay May is that I won't say the dreaminess but there is a melding that happens and it's that I want to kind of hold up and quite possibly even later in my work achieve that kind of what we what we mentioned earlier as entering into entering into it's Hopkins inscape it's like getting into the the flow getting into that that life energy and when I encounter it in even you know even in in Brenda's work uh or in May May's work I say Brenda's work because the, you know Brenda's intentionally trying to also call attention to the the abuses in the same way that I am and and others are to kind of raise consciousness and there there is no hierarchy here but kind of uh, coterminous approaches. And that's what I'm really excited about. But for my own aspiration, I would like like the the lyric to kind of encapsulate and enter into maybe a seasonal consciousness in a way that the earth kind of cycles through various states. I want the work to be experienced in that kind of that kind of way. This may be one of the measures by which we learn to engage the greatness of a poem. If you read, for example, um, 
Auden, September 1st, 1939, is very specific to the rise of Hitler and the exploitation of that very fragile moment. You read it in 2001, it becomes another kind of poem. And I think that porousness that you that you talk about is something that that is is a is a state of entering into the language and thinking about how poems could possibly occupy ourselves, be reflective of ourselves, of our communities, and then next level, how is entering into the possibilities of existing in the future. And if we can think about how nature models that for us, then this might be one of the advances in language and poetic form. Right now, and I'm on record as saying somewhere, someone called me out on, I can't remember where, but, you know, it's like, Experimental poetry, all the experiments have been done. And that's not true. It's meant to be provocative, of of course. But if we're going to advance the art beyond the confines that we currently practice, we're going to have to turn to nature. I love that. Well, as we come to a close and, and thinking about the ways your ecological work has taken different f- forms over the course of your career, I wanted to return again, the lineage and inheritance. The first several poems in the book, new poems from your new collection, Lovesick, they speak to inheriting the earth and the state of the earth we are inheriting and passing on. The word inheritance is used in these opening poems, like the line in the poem, Lovesick, you've inherited acres of a night sky and she is your aurora borealis a poem that also mentions the inheritance of a polluted river. And also in the opening poem, you address the non-human world like a lover or a friend, dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards, disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed. I like how in some of your prose, you weave together your concerns about ecological inheritance and the poetry you've inherited you mentioned that the lines from Robert Frost's poem, Birches, Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better, are some of your favorite lines. And that one of your desert island poems is Kumanyaka's Venus's Flytraps. And in speaking about Robert Hayden at an event, you talk about his poem, Night Blooming Sirius, as a great example of finding the divine within nature. And then you go on to read one of your new poems after talking about him, a poem called Of Wolves and Imagination, that I feel like much like the opening poem that circles the island of your fears, but only once before living like a raging waterfall. It also puts forth a singular voice or song or howl but holds it in tension with also boundlessness and wildness beyond self Mm. that feels like these new poems might be a new gesture for you. And I'd love to go out with this poem of wolves and imagination, but before we do, do you have any sense of what all this looking back and this revisiting and this selecting and collecting has done to you and to your future, 
the desire in you for the next mm. gesture of poetry to where you want to reach toward or gesture with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for teaching me to be a reader of my own <laughs> my own work. Well, it's an honor. Um, that was that was awesome. You know, there is a sense that I'm interrogating myself even more as a result of looking the journey of looking back and where these most recent poems, most of them written um, just after the pandemic. And so I am looking like consciously thinking about where can I, where can I go next? I mean, there is the ever lingering urban renewal poems that are always asking for my attention and it's becoming its own kind of village. Um, that I'm visiting occasionally. And it and it is holding a lot of questions and experiences for me. So I'm definitely committed to that. But this interrogating myself and looking at the work and the journey thus far, I am self-consciously thinking about where, where, you know, the use a Helen Vindler term, where is the breakage happening in aesthetically in my work and how can I point towards the future and maybe infinity because I, I, I am driven by a restlessness with myself, um, and that's not that's not a performance for anyone else other than me feeling that I have not gave in language a full picture of this life as experienced by major, and so I'm looking for those those forms, those projects that are going to carry the questions that. I'm living with and also some of the pain and also some of the the blessings that I have. I, I want to share that. And I feel like, yes, Razzle Dazzle gives a gives one angle of that. It is a very privileged space <laughs> to be able to to do that because as I said earlier, I can point to individuals for whom I'm grateful they've gotten me this far. They don't even know it. Some of them, uh, their works, their poems. I do feel like being the host of the slowdown is opening me up to the possibility of a, a poetry that is populous, but doesn't give up on the rigor of the art. And that's with great help from my producer, Micah Kildon. And, and Maria and, and Lou Barron and Beth Perlman, like they are not trained in these questions in the way that we are. And so that when I bring forth a poem, there is a, a demand to make it less of a sunburn and more of a pleasant kind of light coming into to the room. Mm-hmm. I think that was the work of Mary Oliver. And I think that was a work of a number of poets who have reached into the inner life of of readers. I think um, Franz Wright was going in that direction in his in his later work. Without the, if you can think of Franz without his kind of like rough outer self, you can see his growth, and that's what's what's beautiful um, about this moment in one's life. I can think of a number of visual artists for whom how they evolved was one towards minimalism. That's a model, a potential model for me. 
Um, I do think we need to give space for younger poets, emergent uh, poets. And so quieting down a little bit, um, but not, you know, first there has to be the epic and then you can talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. And I'm reading of Wolves and Imagination. Yes. You know, I was just thinking about Barry Lopez, for whom this poem is uh, dedicated. And I, I think he and a number of essayists, you know, I praise the, I praise the fiction writers in terms of going headlong into the stormy waters of race. But in terms of the questions that we asked ourselves that keep us up late at night. I feel like the essayists have done that. And I was just thinking about Barry Lopez. That wildness, you, you said that this is a direction and I feel I'm going to agree with you on this. These poems feel like that they are wanting to assert a little bit more the rawness of, of beingness. Um, and sometimes you got to go through those forms that we were talking about earlier in order to arrive at a at a at a voice that feels forceful in your own and not tamed of wolves and imagination for Barry Lopez. Every so often one has to make a sound of terrible pain as though in boundless woods, among thorns and berries, prowling through bramble and tangled vines, whose presence is a green fog. One has to leave one's candlelit dinner at 11 Madison Park with its white linen sad as milk and silverware tenderly laid out like an embarrassment of torture. And one has to gaze into the chambers of a soon empty heart and return to the kingdom of creatures and give up the measured silence of the respectable whose desire and gasping breaths dangle as though from a string of floss all squeaky mirt and nothing more. Every so often, one has to make a sound like a massive season kept in the pocket, a beaded amulet for when the temperature lowers. The imagination is a matinee of memories with a side of parsley, like this one, rifle fire complicating a bed of wild begonia, which is to say, the skies burn indigo and your breath can be anything possible, raucous as a church service or the quiet crunch of leaves, earth's golden confetti held between palms. Thank you, Major Jackson. It's been an honor. I've been looking you, forward David. to today. Thank you for the really fantastic conversation and the readings that have opened up my skies to my own work. So grateful for that. And congratulations again. I appreciate it. Yeah, truly. We've been talking today to Major Jackson about his latest book, Razzle Dazzle, New and Selected Poems, 2002 to 2022. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, 
makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Major Jackson and his work at majorjackson.com. For the bonus audio archive, Major contributes a reading of John Ashbery's More Pleasant Adventures, joining supplemental readings by so many of our past guests, long-form interviews with translators, some craft talks, and more. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards from the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog et Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>